Welcome to the Functional Nutrition Podcast with Aaron Holt, Functional Nutritionist. I work with clients on the seacoast of New Hampshire and virtually all over the world through both private consultations and online nutrition programs. I'm here with my co-host, Kyle Mayorana, registered dietitian of Root Down Nutrition based in Asheville, North Carolina. We are both board-certified integrative and functional nutritionists. This means we dive deep with people to get to the root cause of their health issues. In this podcast, we will address all things health, food, and nutrition, discussing our research, clinical experience, and life experience. Please keep in mind our disclaimer, this podcast is created for educational purposes only and should never be used as a replacement for medical diagnosis or medical treatment. Thanks for joining us. Let's dive in. Hey guys, we're back with another show. Um, Today, we're going to be talking about female hormone imbalances. Uh, specifically, we're going to talk about PCOS or polycystic ovarian syndrome, which is the most common endocrine disorder for women of reproductive age. And it's also the leading cause of infertility in the U.S. We're also going to discuss hypothalamic amenorrhea, which can actually present similarly, but is different. We'll talk about how to assess if you have either of those hormone imbalances, how to differentiate between the two and what to do about it. Um, this is a big topic, the whole hormone imbalance. It's something that I keep seeing more and more frequently in my practice. Um, I'm seeing wacky things happening after um, women come off birth control. I'm seeing a lot of PCOS. I'm actually seeing clients present as though they have PCOS right after coming off the pill, but then going through a carefully designed hormone detox and nutrition plan, they've regained their cycles. Um, I'm seeing women struggling with hormone imbalance after years or even a lifetime of yo-yo dieting. Um, and then interestingly, I've had some clients come to me after losing their period, just doing a short bout of a restrictive diet, something like an isogenics or training for a fitness competition. So the point is hormone imbalance is kind of a big deal. Um, unfortunately, it's also kind of a big question mark. I've found um, that women aren't really getting a whole lot of answers or support. Um, Even once they discover what the underlying imbalance is, they're like, all right, but what do I do about it? And I I think part of the problem and why we're all at such a loss, and we've certainly talked about this on the show before, is that women are really taught to cut themselves off from their cycle. You know, we're never talked about the intricacies of our menstrual cycle. I think culturally we all view it as disgusting, as shameful, as a nuisance. Um, And then on top of that, we have medical professionals telling us to opt out of our cycle. Um, You know, oh, you have some some hormone issues, just go on the pill. I've had two clients just this past week alone tell me that the only option they were given for PCOS was birth control, uh, which is frustrating to say the least. And then finally, we have a diet industry that tells us to starve ourselves on the reg. Um, And as I've talked about ad nauseum here, a woman's body is not designed for famine or starvation or long-term restriction. It dramatically shifts our hormones and our fertility. So we've had Dr. Jolene Brighton on the show talking about this in episode 48. We've talked about supporting female cycles on episode 45. We're going to have Lisa Hendrickson-Jack on an upcoming show. She's the host of Fertility Friday podcast and also the author of The Fifth Vital Sign. So this conversation isn't going anywhere. We need to continue to discuss this stuff so women can start to get some answers for themselves. And we're very lucky today that we've got Kaylee McDevitt to keep the conversation going. Um, Kaylee is a registered dietitian and a certified LEAP therapist that helps her clients personalize their nutrition for optimal health and hormones. After experiencing the pitfalls of conventional approaches to women's health and nutrition firsthand, she has dedicated her career to specializing in women's health and digestive issues. Kaylee runs a virtual private practice and is a co-creator of the online women's health course and community, Her Hormones Academy. I will link to both of those things in the show notes, you guys, if you're interested in checking them out. She's energized by helping others take the driver's seat on their journey to their happiest and healthiest life. So Kaylee, thank you so much for being on the show. 
Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Am I pronouncing your name right? Yeah, you are. That would have that would have been some good <laughs> housekeeping to get out of the way before we started recording. <laughs> oh, you nailed uh, it. Excellent. Um, so I'd love to hear a little bit about yourself, your background, mm-hmm. personally, professionally, why you decided to build your whole practice around this subject. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess the best place to start would be um, in, in college. So I went into school undecided about what I wanted to do, but always interested in the health space. Um, and I, like who you were talking about, one of your clients in the intro, was presented with the only option to my own hormone problems as birth control. And this was towards the end of my high school time. And so I was put on birth control, like without questions asked, no other options. And I really just went through the full gamut of issues that you can have from being on the birth control pill. And I would bring up these issues at my appointments and they would either be dismissed or we would try a different brand with different hormone ratios and levels. And I really just lost myself for several years. I just, I didn't feel like me. I felt like there was a fog and all the while my interest in nutrition was developing and I ended up stumbling into the dietetics career path. Um, and it wasn't until I finished you know, my undergrad and my internship and actually became a dietitian that I ended up in a job where I worked alongside some functional medicine practitioners and started to dig into the research about how the heck the female body even works and realizing that despite all these years of education, I just really had no idea. And so once I figured out how the body was designed to work and how the pill works against the way the body was designed to work, I decided to put myself through a series of uh, lab tests to figure out what was going on, take myself off the pill, spent about a year recovering my own hormone balance and really felt the fog lift in my life and was able to feel like myself again and feel like I had control over the direction that my health was heading. And so really since then, I just kind of have naturally fallen into um, helping women do the same and hopefully helping them do it faster than I did or at least earlier than I did. And so it was just a natural progression into you know private practice focusing on women's health and then the online women's health course, Her Hormones Academy. So you said that despite years of education, you had no idea how the body works. Isn't that crazy? Oh, gosh. I know. Especially the female body. We're like, hormones, whoa, those sound confusing. Like, right. We're just, nobody knows what the hell's going on. Um, and, you know, if you think back to, like, I don't know, seventh grade health class, you know, we're taught that you have your period, the end, right? Like, right. that's, like, all you need to know about hormones. But there's obviously so much more to the menstrual cycle than just menstruating, just bleeding. Mm-hmm. So... Can you kind of like take it from the top a little bit for some of us um, and talk to us more about our cycle and also about ovulation? Mm-hmm. Um, I think if, if we're going to talk about loss of period, loss of menstruation, you know if you're not getting your period, right? As a woman, mm-hmm. you know if you're not menstruating, but we might not know if we're not ovulating. Um, so I'd love for you to talk about that a little bit. Why either of those is a big deal if we're not mm-hmm. menstruating, if we're not ovulating, and maybe some common reasons for it. Sure. Yeah, I think understanding ovulation was like the big aha moment for me on my own health journey because I also learned that birth control is is designed to prevent ovulation. That's that's how it works. Um, and so I guess I should back up. So ovulation is the release of an egg from an ovary. And it typically happens in mid-cycle, so somewhere around day 14. And it is the epitome of the menstrual cycle. I mean, it's so it's so important. It's how we produce our hormones. So leading up to releasing an egg, we're gonna have a surge of estrogen. And then once the egg is released, that's when we start to produce progesterone for the second half of the cycle. And these two hormones are, are everything for the way that we feel, the way that we think, the way that we function. Um, they have a significant control over our neurotransmitter production. So the way that our, our brain feels. And so for me personally, this was such a light bulb moment because one of the biggest issues I was having with birth control is I was dealing with a lot of mood issues. Like I just felt really down dealt with like, you know, intermittent anxiety and depression and not feeling like myself. And I realized that taking birth control was preventing me from making my own hormones. So I didn't get those brain boosting benefits of having estrogen and progesterone on board. And so if we're not ovulating, we're not getting that hormone production. And of course, that's going to show up as the telltale sign of not having your period. But the bigger issue is that we're not, we're not ovulating. And so treating ovulation like a vital sign 
is the direction that I hope women's health will go in in the near future because ovulating regularly means that we're fertile. And whether or not you plan to have a baby anytime soon or ever, fertility is an important indicator of health because it means that your body feels safe enough and equipped to carry a pregnancy. And that's a reflection of really every system in your body. It's a reflection of, is your nutrition sufficient to support and nourish your body? Is it that your stress levels are reasonable and manageable and that all other body systems are working in alignment? So whether or not we ovulate, is a huge deal and absolutely something that we should all strive to learn about ourselves. Um, And definitely wasn't something that I understood or was tracking in myself prior to that point. Um, I'm curious. So this is, this has come up uh, quite a bit recently. Um, Despite talking about this kind of stuff more on the show, um, I'll, I'll have people say, well, I'm on birth control now Mm -hmm. just because I really don't want to get pregnant, but I'll like kind of like deal with the fallout once I come off birth control. Um, Mm -hmm. what do you say when, when clients present you with that? Obviously it's, it's our own choice, you know, it's everybody's unique choice, but like, where does the education piece come in? Right. So yeah, like you said, it's 100% up to the individual. And there are cases where birth control might be the best option because you might not be in a place to take on the responsibility of of managing that in another way. Um, And so I just think it's important to educate how the pill or any form of hormonal birth control works. And it works by suppressing our ovulation and suppressing our hormone production. And so depending on the individual's goals, we might have to have a conversation about how being on hormonal birth control is in contrast to you know, whatever health goals they're looking to accomplish. Um, there are absolutely ways to better support your body on the pill if you choose to stay on it. And so that might be a conversation worth having, but I just think education of how it works and then education of other options is really where I would start with that. So you said that fertility is, is kind of like a, a, a big marker for overall women's health. You totally. Know? Um, so let's say somebody isn't ovulating or their cycle is irregular, they've got infrequent ovulation, what might be big reasons for that? Mm. Yeah, so there are a handful. So the first reason I would dive into would be um, related to your diet. And so this would be... You're such a dietitian. Uh, yeah, I know. <laughs> Just have to go there first. Um, so it would be related to either a, a deficiency in total calorie intake or maybe even total carbohydrate intake. Um, or it could be a deficiency in a specific nutrient. And the reason why these things matter is if you remember, fertility is an indicator that your body feels safe and capable of carrying a pregnancy. If our brain is getting signals that our total calorie intake is too low, or we're lacking in key nutrients, or maybe we've been on a low carb intake for an extended period of time, our brain's like, hey, now's not the good time for her to have a child. She doesn't have enough fuel on board to support herself. We're just going to shut the process down. And I know you mentioned you see that in your practice from some pretty intense dieting. Yeah, you know, I, I called out isogenics. Uh, yeah. Are you familiar with them? I, don't I know. am. Okay. Yep. I said, we're, it's huge here. And I feel like I'm always talking about it because people are like always doing it um, and asking me my opinion. Uh, but I've had people go on isogenics for like you know, a month or two months or three months, like a very short period of time and lose their, their period. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't take much to throw off the safety signals in your body, especially in a female body. Like we're Mm -hmm. so attuned to, to any threat to survival, famine being a huge one. Yeah, absolutely. And I always like to mention, you know, the, the research that we have available or predominantly the research that we have on most dietary interventions is on males or women on birth control. And it's tough because, you know, something like the ketogenic diet definitely has therapeutic applications and some promising research behind it. But then I'll have female clients that give it a try and it totally wrecks their hormone balance. And, you know, they've, they feel like they're doing something wrong because, you know, all the other information says that it's going to be effective for them. So it's just important to know that women are different than men. We have different um, safety mechanisms in the body, for lack of better terms, and it's more sensitive to changes in nutrient intake. That is such a huge and valid point to make. And I, I, it's like, I want to scream it for the cheap seats in the back because <laughs> we hear it and we're like, yeah, 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 yeah. But it's so important. I mean, especially in the current climate of ketogenic diets, intermittent fasting, caloric restriction for longevity. Yeah, cool. It 
tends to work a lot better for male bodies than for female bodies. And I just keep seeing that over and over and over again. Yep, absolutely. Okay, so nutrition status, that's mm-hmm. a big player. Yep, um, high stress levels. And so again, we can have some stress coming from insufficient nutrient status, um, but other stresses in your life. So that could be physical demands of exercising too much. It could be like the typical emotional and mental stresses that just come from living as an adult in the world that we live in today. Um, It could come from perceived stress or even the stress of worrying about not having regular periods can contribute to this. So big like mind body connection piece there. Um, You can have issues with ovulation and infrequent periods just coming off of birth control. And it's definitely something that I experience personally and see in a lot of my clients. And if you remember the way birth control works by suppressing our natural hormone production, it makes sense that it would take a little TLC to get your body back into a state of balance. Um, And then of course the topic of our talk today would be PCOS or polycystic ovarian syndrome. Um, is a really common cause of absent or infrequent periods. Um, And that has some crossover with the hypothalamic amenorrhea. So I know we'll spend the rest of our conversation kind of talking about both of them and where they overlap and how they're different. Okay, so with PCOS, let's talk about, uh, there is a little bit of disagreement over diagnostic Mm -hmm. criteria, right? Despite the name, it's not always the presence of ovarian cysts that makes up PCOS. And on the the flip side of that same coin, you can also have ovarian cysts without PCOS. So Mm -hmm. I just want to make that abundantly clear. But but most cases of PCOS do have some type of disturbed menstrual cycle, whether it's delayed ovulation, really long cycles, irregular cycles, uh, amenorrhea. So this could also be the case with with HA. So how do Mm -hmm. we start to well, let's talk, maybe start by talking about the similarities between the two. Where, what's the overlap yeah. there? Okay, so the biggest similarities between the two conditions would be, of course, either the absence or irregular periods. Um, and then, like you mentioned, you can have polycystic ovaries in either condition, and having cysts on your ovaries is really not diagnostic of PCOS, despite how confusing the name is. Um, <laughs> and I think that's the biggest reason why there's such a an overdiagnosis of PCOS, even if that's not the case. And we'll talk about why that's so detrimental to the people trying to overcome those issues. But it's normal to have cysts on your ovaries. Those are the follicles that, that go on to release eggs. So at any given time, it's normal for us to have multiple follicles or cysts on our ovaries, and it's not indicative of an issue. Um, the so other, have, oh, go ahead. You could have cysts on your ovaries and be completely asymptomatic. You're totally. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep, and that's the biggest reason why an ultrasound alone really can't be used to diagnose PCOS. And I do, and I don't know if you do as well, get clients with the diagnosis of PCOS and an ultrasound was the only test that was done. So what would you say is more definitive uh, diagnostic criteria for PCOS? Yeah, so the classic presentation of PCOS would be um, insulin-resistant PCOS. So that would mean that we would get some blood work that indicated the presence of insulin resistance. And you know, my favorite way to do that would be a fasting insulin. So um, just checking your glucose levels wouldn't be enough information, but a fasting insulin level that's elevated in addition to some of the other symptoms that we'll get into would, would tell us that it was PCOS. Um, the other hallmark sign would be elevated androgens. So those are you know testosterone and DHEA. Okay, so can you talk about specific labs that you like to see, what, like that you use in your practice? So let's say, okay, fasting insulin. Do you mm-hmm. find that um, your client's physicians are willing to order that test? I find that it's not automatically ordered, but if we can request it, then they typically will run it for them. Um, okay. Yeah. What What do you usually find? Mixed. Yeah. Mixed. Definitely mixed. Um, I get a lot of kickback because you know, as nutritionists and dietitians, we're like the dirt on the bottom of doctors' shoes most of the right. time. Right. So they're like, why would a nutritionist want to see this? That's like oftentimes what we get. Um, okay. And then in terms of testing for androgens, do you do you ha- do you prefer serum, saliva, urine? What's your 
would your favorite way to test for those? Yeah, in in my practice, we typically use um, Dutch testing, so that would be dried urine samples for hormone testing. Um, but when I have a client go to their doctor to get blood work done, um, it's always serum, and that is a great way to look at like free testosterone levels. Um, so that's, I guess, a combination of both would be what I use. It depends on if I'm ordering the labs or if their doctor is. Okay, that's um, same here. Yeah. Um, okay, so what are common symptoms mm-hmm. of PCOS? Like how would somebody start to be like, oh, maybe this is me? Right. So again, there are a couple different varieties of PCOS, so we do have to keep that in mind. But classic PCOS presentation would have things um, like hair growth around your face, specifically the jaw area, and probably hair loss on the hair, um, which is miserable because you're losing it where you want it and gaining it where you don't. Um, Acne is another common thing that I would see with classic PCOS. Um, It might be somebody that struggles with their body weight, um, and that's usually related to that insulin resistance, so carrying more uh, body fat around the midsection. Um, they may have polycystic ovaries as evidenced by their ultrasound, but again, that's not super diagnostic. And then, of course, absent or irregular periods would be the other piece of that puzzle. Okay. And you're talking about classic PCOS. Mm-hmm. What about, you know, what if it's not classic? Yeah. Good question. So classic PCOS goes hand in hand with insulin resistance. Um, a few other varieties of PCOS that I see in my practice would either be post-pill. So we talked about coming off of birth control and how that it can throw your body into a state of infrequent ovulation that looks like PCOS, but is usually resolved with um, within like three to six months of coming off of the pill. Um, you can have inflammatory PCOS or PCOS from things like high prolactin or... Um, even hypothyroidism, um, celiac disease. So that would be like a, you know, other cause PCOS, but they all fall under the same umbrella, which makes diagnosis and treatment tricky because you have to know what the root cause is in order to appropriately address it. And that's why it would make sense to work with a practitioner. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Okay. So what about, what about, um, HA. Yeah. Where's the overlap there? Okay. So HA, um, hypothalamic amenorrhea, is the total absence of a regular cycle. And this has more to do with communication from your brain. And that's where the H comes from in the HA, the hypothalamus. And it can present pretty similar to PCOS because you're having, you know, absent cycles or irregular cycles. Um, You can have cysts on your ovaries and you can even have mild facial hair growth with HA. It's not as severe as it is in PCOS, um, but so it can be diagnosed inaccurately as PCOS. But the root for HA is actually under eating or more specifically under eating carbohydrates. So it's more of a lack of um, available nutrients than it is something like insulin resistance or elevated androgens. So that one I see really commonly mislabeled as PCOS and the treatment is almost the complete opposite. So that's, that's tricky. All right. So let's talk about, um, let's talk about interventions that could, that could be helpful for both. Yeah, absolutely. So if it's PCOS and it's the more classic presentation where we've got insulin resistance and elevated androgens, the first thing we have to do is address the insulin resistance because that's the core of that version of PCOS. It's that high insulin level that actually communicates with our ovaries and causes us to make more testosterone than we normally should and that throws off our cycle. So we'd be taking a look at their total dietary intake of carbs, um, helping them to remove any of the higher sugar, more simple carbs and focusing on you know, fiber, slow digesting carbohydrates. Um, we might have to supplement with some key nutrients, things like berberine or um, zinc, vitamin D, um, alpha lipoic acid comes to mind. And then even inositol can be really helpful in cases of PCOS. And then on the flip side, if we find out that it's HA and not PCOS, the interventions are essentially the opposite. We want to make sure that person is eating enough. We probably will raise their calorie intake and raise their carbohydrate intake to support enough fuel on board. Um, And I typically see HA in people that have been chronic dieters their whole life, and they may not even be intentionally under eating, but that's just become the new norm for them. 
or like you mentioned, somebody that's done like a short-term, really intense diet and it just threw their system out of whack. Are there any specific labs or mm -hmm. uh, markers that can indicate somebody has HA? Yeah, for sure. So you would see normal insulin levels if that was tested. You would see normal androgen levels in HA. Um, you would see like low to normal luteinizing hormone, which is one I forgot to mention with PCOS that's elevated in PCOS, but low or normal in HA. Um, and then you would see low to normal overall hormone levels. Whereas in PCOS, you're more likely to see elevated androgens. So think of HA as kind of like a suppression of normal function and hormone production. Everything's gonna come back pretty low on your lab tests. Um, you're not going to have that heightened LH or the heightened androgen levels that you would see on PCOS. It's just kind of like low general output of hormones. Do you tend to see low cortisol with HA as well? Yeah, I do. Um, yeah, so like everything's just, just, it just needs a boost. Like everything's like, I need fuel, like help me out. Yeah. Um, do you tend to see one more frequently than the other? You know, I lately have been seeing more HA than PCOS. And I think you hit the nail on the head in your intro when you talked about the way that the diet industry communicates with women specifically. I just have seen a lot of people chronically under eating, whether or not it was intentional and seeing the way that that suppresses the way that their body makes hormones um, has been pretty profound. What do you notice? Lately, I've actually been seeing more PCOS, but I, yeah. I think just things come in waves, not to say that that's an accurate gauge of like exactly what's going on out there. But to, to touch on that, um, that low, low food intake point, um, one thing that I've been doing a lot over the past year is actually have people track, which, yeah. you know, is not really historically been, been my vibe and my practice, um, because I think we can get so in our heads, but people will come to me and, you know, women and say like, I'm eating enough. I'm definitely eating enough. I'm definitely eating enough. And then when we track, we see that maybe they're getting like 1200 calories a day. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, oh, so we actually need double. You need double what yeah. you're eating right now. And I think we're just so conditioned to think 1,200 or 1,500 calories is enough. And what I've been trying to do, whether it's on the podcast or with clients or in my workshop, is to talk about like caloric specifically, like how much we need. Not to say it's all about calories because it certainly isn't, but you... you you need to fuel yourself appropriately. So for me, in order for me to maintain, I'm an active person, I'm about 145 pounds, 5'7", I need 2,700 calories a day mm -hmm. just to maintain, right? Like that's insane when yeah. you compare it to, to women who are like, well, I gotta try to get the 1,200 calories in. Yeah. Like I, I, I couldn't, if I went that into that type of deficit, I can't even imagine what would happen to my body. I know. I know. It's pretty crazy. And that was part of my own hormone struggle early on is I was trying to follow a lot of the conventional nutrition advice that I was learning, trying to become a dietitian. And I was meticulously counting calories and, you know, staying away from high fat foods. And it's just, it's really eye opening for people when they track their intake and then you, you know, do a rough calculation for them of what they need to maintain. And the contrast between the two is oftentimes huge. Yeah, you know, it's, I, I don't know, um, listeners certainly know that I, I struggled for 15 years with uh, disordered eating, mm -hmm. anorexia, and then bulimia, and like some, like just bouncing between the two for a long time. And when I was in dietetic school, I remember, like I remember having the logs, and I was like trying to get 12 to 1400 calories a day, and I was like exercising a lot, yep. um, and just like logging, but being really locked into that paradigm of, of and you know, as dietitians, we're also trained to to do the food logs, right? And to like mm -hmm. do the macros and to do all of that. And it's like, I was doing it really, really well and it wasn't working for my body. It just wasn't. So we yep. have to kind of break away. And I think just across the board, I mean, if you're doing something and you're not getting the results that you're, that you're after, it's time to change and it's okay yep. to change. Like something might work for you for a long time and then it stops working for you and that's okay too. Like mm -hmm. honor that. Um, how do you, what is your intervention? So let's say somebody comes to you with HA mm -hmm. and you, so you are like, you know, an absent period and you discover that it's, it's HA and there's a big, um, 
mental hurdle to overcome. Like if you're like, you actually need to eat more food and they're Mm -hmm. like, that feels scary. Yeah. What do you do? First of all, do you see that in your practice? And if so, what do you do? Oh yeah, I definitely see that. There's a lot of fear, especially in somebody that's been chronically dieting. Um, They're typically the people that have been trying to lose the last 10 to 20 pounds for um, potentially, you know, decades. And they're terrified that if they skew from their current eating patterns, they're just going to gain more weight. So of course we have to have a conversation about why they initially came to me, what those goals were and how under eating is in contrast to achieving those goals. But I also like to do this really gradually. I find it easier for people to wrap their heads around and get comfortable with if we can gradually increase their calories so that it's not so much at once. Because there's a lot of regulatory mechanisms that kind of need to be kicked back on in the body after under eating for so long. You know, they most likely don't even feel that hungry anymore because they've been eating so low for so long. So doubling their intake the next week would be physically uncomfortable for them. So... Um, Like you mentioned, I like to have them track so we know exactly where they are right now. And then I would compare that to where we need to go. And then we would just gradually be adding nutrient-dense foods in for them over the period of several weeks or several months, depending on how far we need to go. So I find that slow and steady is a good compromise and gets them the time that it takes to wrap your head around that. And if, if somebody's compliant and is adding food back in slowly but surely, mm-hmm. how, how long before you see return of ovulation and menstruation? I'm sure it really, really depends yeah. on the person. Yeah, it depends. It depends on if there are any other things going on or maybe they had some micronutrient deficiencies that we needed to replete too, which is, is common if you've been under eating. But I'd say the earliest I would see is about three months because that's how long it takes to really impact your cycle. Um, But I'd say on average closer to six months. And that is hard for people because we're so wired to search for a quick fix or something that can get us to an end goal like the next week. But with hormone health, it's really about playing the long game because it takes about 90 days for an egg to mature. So that's about, I mean, that's three months of work before you see that directly show up in your cycle. So I'd say planning on three to six months would be a good safe estimate, though for some people it can take longer. Yeah, and I think it's important to manage those expectations for exactly the reasons that you laid out. I mean, we're so conditioned to 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 get that instant gratification in our society. And mm-hmm. when it comes to the human body, it's just, it's on a different timetable. Um, (laughs) and I also want to throw that I saw this like somewhere in a meme or something, but it was like, if you gained weight or like if eating the appropriate amount of food caused you to gain weight, then you needed to gain weight. And I think that's something that we, because we view leanness as the Holy grail of health, which is absolute, absolutely not true, (laughs) but because we view it that way. Every, you know, weight gain is always perceived as a failure and that couldn't be further from the truth. Like you might actually have to gain weight in order to allow your body to thrive and function appropriately. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's huge. I, I love that you brought that up. And, and sometimes it happens. Weight gain happens sometimes. And, you know, at the end of the day, we just have to remember that we're on the same team as our body, even if we've been fighting it our whole lives. And your body is always looking out for you and trying to do things that are gonna protect you in the long run. And if we've been underfeeding it for so long, it thinks that there's a period of famine going on, so we finally give it some food and it's gonna store some of that in case we encounter a famine again. But I always like to reassure people, if you can stay the course, nourish your body with enough food, once we get to a place of, of hormone balance and adequate calorie intake, you usually see the body settle into a weight that's healthy for it. Um, And it does so much easier than constantly fighting to stay at 1200 calories. Yeah. That's kind of something that I've had to explain to clients too. It's like your body has to know it's safe. And Mm -hmm. so sometimes people will be like, well, I I added a few, a few hundred calories and nothing's changing. Nothing's changing. It's like your body still doesn't trust it. You need for like 10 years, 20 years, you've been withholding food. Like it needs to know that food is is coming and it's always going to be there and that can take time to just like allow the body to be like okay things are okay yeah totally it takes a lot of time so let's bounce back to pcos because Mm -hmm. it's kind of like 
the opposite of what we're talking about right now because a lot of people who get diagnosed with PCOS, like the two options that they're given in their physician's office, it's like lose weight and or go on the pill mm-hmm. or metformin. Like, yeah. okay, so three, let's say three. <laughs> so can you talk, talk around that? I mean, what if somebody actually doesn't have weight to lose? You know, what, right. what can they do? Yeah. So obviously this is audio, so we don't have the ability to show a visual, but I'll visually walk you through like a a little checklist that I would use in this case. So if somebody is having irregular or absent periods and they go to their doctor, you would start at the top and it would be irregular or absent periods. Then they would need to ask themselves, do I have a history of dieting or under eating? If so, that would funnel down the HA pathway where we would need to investigate that and probably start working on ramping up their intake. But if that's not the case for them, then we'd go down the PCOS pathway and then we would need to do that checklist. And that would start with ruling out insulin insulin resistance. And so like I mentioned before, a fasting insulin level would be really helpful here. Um, They likely have pretty significant carbohydrate or sugar cravings, or maybe a very high sugar intake in their diet in general. And for that individual, that would be where we would need to start. So we would be talking about dietary interventions and then maybe some targeted supplementation to improve insulin sensitivity. Um, And that's really where the recommendation of metformin falls in this picture of PCOS is that they're trying to target that insulin resistance piece. Unfortunately, it's more of a band-aid approach versus changing diet and lifestyle to support healthy insulin levels. And I love that you mentioned berberine a, oh, a few oh, yeah. ago because clinically it, it it's as effective as metformin. Yeah, exactly. Without the side effects. Right. I know it's beautiful. Yeah. So there's, there's really like honestly so much power in your diet, your lifestyle and any supplementations that you decide to proceed with that giving that power up to a prescription medication or a Band-Aid approach is just, it's so sad to see. And it's heartbreaking that those are often the only things presented as options. So you really have to become your own health advocate to start working on those other deeper root issue causes. Yeah. And I just want to pop in and and bring some like kind of pivot here because this is something that's, that's been on my mind and a lot of my colleagues lately it's that you know we're very conditioned to buy into the the conventional medicine model which is also the insurance model yep and so anytime we we there's like a lot of no i don't want to say skepticism but a lot of if we have to operate outside of that model people are like well wait a second you know even things like supplementation people are Mm -hmm. like well i don't really want to take supplements but it's like well you you're you've kind of dug yourself into a hole or your body's in this like hole and you actually might need supplements to like dig yourself out of the hole. Mm -hmm. Right. There's like, I love how you said targeted supplementation. We're not just telling you to like go out and like mainline spirulina because some Instagram (laughs) star did it. Like this is, you know, there's clinical research here to back up the interventions that we're making and it's to get your body on a better path. Um, Mm -hmm. and I know it kind of goes against the grain of conventional medicine of the insurance model. Um, but we sometimes have to do that, right? Like in order to insurance, conventional medicine is great for trauma, right? It is great. If there's an emergency, if you break your bone, thank God we have doctors there and same deal with insurance. It's there as insurance for an emergency. But as we move into the future and, you know, in like current, current healthcare and as we continue to move into the future the model is changing right mm-hmm. it is it's not there for preventative health it is not there to support wellness this is when we have to kind of be our own champions and we have to take on some responsibility and it might look like operating outside of the model that we've always thought is the one way to go yes i am so happy you brought that up because there is a big mindset shift that has to happen with the way that we approach chronic conditions because and i'm sure you feel this way too the the clients that i get come to me after doing the conventional approaches and going from practitioner to practitioner and still not getting resolution of symptoms and so you know it's i think it's going to change a lot in the future and we're just going to need more and more people that do what you do and i do to help people put the pieces together because there's an overwhelming amount of information online 
and you can find some really great stuff on there, but you, I find at least my clients come to me and they're like, God, I am exhausted from trying to figure out what the heck I need to do next. And the beauty of, of hiring a coach is that they can help you figure out what the root cause is so that you can target that instead of wasting, you know, months and years trying on different diets that, that don't fit. And, you know, I'm not going to argue that the functional tests that you and myself do are, 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 aren't expensive. You know, mm-hmm. they're definitely an out-of-pocket cost for most people. And, and, you know, it's they're not cheap. But would you rather spend years throwing things against a wall to see what sticks? Or would you mm-hmm. rather get some definitive data that helps to, to take you to your next step? I mean, I can speak from personal experience. I've spent many years just trying to like like blindly trying to figure things out and working within the conventional model Mm -hmm. and then I did have to invest money to get answers but hey I have an autoimmune disease in remission and I'm like living my best life so yeah money well spent (laughs) yeah it's just an upfront investment versus like a lingering slow expense that doesn't get you feeling better so that is an absolute financial drain on the country. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, not to mention how it affects everybody, but yeah, totally. So I think that these kinds of conversations are important because it's it's pursuing a more functional approach to a condition definitely has an upfront investment and it, it takes work. I mean, you're changing major things about your life, but in my experience, it's like the only path to actually feeling better and, and getting that resolution, so. All right, we can climb off our soapboxes now. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right, so we were talking about the PCOS and the kind of like choose your own adventure. Oh shop, yes, right. So PCOS, yes. the first thing you want to do is rule out insulin sensitivity. You know, yep. if you have if you if you do have insulin sensitivity, you talked about ways to address that. But what if it's PCOS that's that mm-hmm. without insulin sensitivity, like the non-classic or yep. So you would if if no to insulin resistance, you'd move down the ladder here, and you would rule out high androgen levels. So we would want to look at like free testosterone levels or your DHEA um, because high levels of these are going to influence whether or not we ovulate and throw off the cycle. Um, If these are elevated, it could be related to having higher insulin levels on board, even if you don't have outright insulin resistance. Um, It could be related to things like inflammation. So we'd be taking a look at your diet, at food sensitivities, at um, even like chemical exposure day to day. Um, And then there are other conditions outside of PCOS that can cause higher androgen levels, um, which we won't get into. That's just going to muddy the water here. But so the next step would be looking at androgen levels. Um, Going down from there, we'd want to rule out other possible causes for lack of ovulation. And that would be taking a look at your thyroid. Um, ruling out something like celiac disease, um, and then taking a look at some key nutrients. So vitamin D, zinc, iron, B6, those kinds of things can really impact our ability to ovulate regularly. And sometimes PCOS is really just a deficiency. And if we can correct that, we can get regular cycles back. Do you have a favorite way of testing for nutrients? That's a really good question. Um, I have used a couple different options. I've used the NutraVal before, um, which I like, and then I've used SpectraCell's micronutrient test, um, and that's I, I like that too. Um, I wouldn't say either option is perfect. So for some of those nutrients, I'll try to get from their primary care physician so that they can go through insurance, and that would just be a regular blood draw. Um, for others, I might use one of those two tests or taking a look at some organic acids. So for example, the one for B6 is present on that Dutch test that we were talking about earlier. Um, so there are a couple different ways. It just really depends on what I suspect would be most relevant for them based on their history. Okay, that makes sense. Um, all right, that is all super, super helpful. It's like a lot to think about. It, uh. It's a lot. <laughs> I feel like it'd be nice if we could show a visual of this, this checklist because a lot of times you feel like you don't know what direction to go. Well, it's, it's, and it's so interesting because you think when you hear PCOS, it's like lose weight and manage your blood sugar. Right. Which, you know, if it were that simple and straightforward, that would be great. But oftentimes it's not quite as simple as that, Mm -hmm. Um, which I think like kind of leads, leads women to feel frustrated, you know, because it's like, well, I'm doing all the right things and like still not getting the results that I'm, 
that I'm after. So if somebody's listening to this and is like done the in, like the kind of straightforward interventions and still isn't where they want to be, you might it might require you diving in a little bit deeper to some of the the things that that we're mentioning here. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, I had a question come in um, from Instagram, and she says she's a type one diabetic and was recently diagnosed with PCOS. Over the last three months, um, she's been working toward modest weight loss, limiting dairy, and limiting carbs. She has to keep carbs to a modest amount to avoid ketosis. Um, And she doesn't indicate why she wants to avoid ketosis, but that's what she says. And um, she has a hard time avoiding all refined sugar in the setting of a a low blood sugar. Mm. Okay. She'd love your opinion on which form of quick acting sugar is the best and least inflammatory when she does have those low blood sugar dips. Okay. Um, and then she'd like your take on how soon ovulation starts to regulate with these changes, which is a good question that I'm sure a lot of people have. Like, okay, I'm doing all the right things. How long is it going to take to, to get fixed? Yeah. Absolutely. So my husband actually has type one diabetes too. So this was good timing for a question on, on type one. Um, and I just, I honestly would suspect that there's quite a bit of PCOS in the type one community, just given the nature of that. So, um, first of all, I just want to say great job for working on modest weight loss and limiting your dairy and your carbohydrates. Um, because you're taking insulin Um, obviously you can't just drop your carbs to a really low level without having low blood sugar moments. So the first step I would say is make sure that the reduction in carbohydrates is really gradual and that you're adjusting your basal rate gradually alongside that. Um, If you can do those things very slowly, you can help prevent a lot of big swings in your blood sugar um, and obviously prevent unwanted ketosis. Um, And if you do have a low blood sugar, Obviously, I'd love to say that you could just do some, you know, a sweet potato or something that's a nice starchy carb to correct that. But unfortunately, that's not fast enough acting in in the case of a low blood sugar. So I'd say your best bet would be something like um, an organic fruit juice that doesn't have any additives in it or even like a a honey packet is something that, you know, my husband would use too, um, because at least we're cutting down on any of the additives because a lot of those glucose tablets and things that you can buy at the store have so many artificial dyes and chemicals in them that can be pretty inflammatory. So I would just keep it real food as possible. So like an unsweetened organic fruit juice, a honey packet, um, or even like a date or something like that could be a great quick carbohydrate to bring your blood sugar up. So that would be my answer to part one of that question. And then part two, how soon ovulation starts to regulate you know, that's anywhere from, you know, three to six months typically. Um, And that depends on how quickly we can get to the root of why we're having issues in the first place and then start to have some interventions for it. So um, like we had talked through that checklist, getting to your unique root cause as fast as possible is a big part of that. Because once we know we can adjust your diet, your lifestyle, and add any supplements that we need to get it feeling better and get you ovulating regularly as quickly as possible. So three to six months on average. Okay, and I have one more question for you, and mm-hmm. it's um, about post. Okay, so um, Dr. Jolene Brighton was on the show, and she was talking yeah. about um, post birth control and how sometimes going on the pill just masks underlying mm-hmm. hormone hormonal imbalance, and then you go off the pill, and they kind of come rip roaring back. And so I had a question posed to me: How do you? Let's say you have like PCOS symptoms. Um, or you know some maybe some markers that indicate PCOS after coming off the, the pill. How do you know if, if that's like truly your baseline or if it's just like your body's resetting itself after coming off the pill? Does that make sense? Does that question yeah. make sense? Yeah, okay. totally. And that's, uh, so it's a common scenario because a lot of times when you, if you have PCOS, um, the recommendation for treatment would be to go on the pill. Um, and so unfortunately that's not addressing any of the root causes. It's just putting a bandaid on it for you to then deal with later. And the other thing that happens is because the pill suppresses our hormones, sometimes you get this rebound effect from testosterone when you stop taking the pill. And if you remember high testosterone levels drives classic PCOS, So a lot of times you get that rebounding elevated testosterone causing PCOS when you get off the pill. And so that post-pill PCOS would stick around for three to six months after coming off of the pill 
Um, if those symptoms continue beyond that six month mark, it's more likely that that was the case before you went on and that's more your baseline. Um, but if it's within that first three to six months after coming off the pill, um, it's most likely having to do with your body just trying to reestablish normal and you can give your body some support by making sure your you know, diet is solid um, and then filling in any nutrient gaps that may have been formed as a result of the pill. Okay, awesome. And you've said three to six months, like uh, one million times I know. in the past hour. <laughs> so I think let's really drive that point home. It's like if you have hormone imbalance, and this is true for, you know, stress hormones, adrenal hormones too, I would say, mm-hmm. um, whatever intervention you're doing, give yourself like be patient with yourself, be patient with your body, be patient with your practitioner, be patient with the intervention because it can take a solid six months before you can even start to see turnaround. So don't Mm -hmm. freak out if things aren't happening right away. Like you said, with hormones, it's really more about the long play. Um, and so just, just give yourself some grace around that whole intervention period. Cause it could take some, some time, not for everybody, but definitely I would say for most people, it's going to take some time to re-regulate what you're trying to do. Yes, totally agree. That's why I said it a million times. I just <laughs> like to have realistic expectations up front so that we can avoid any you know frustrations or doubts. It just, it takes a while, but, um, that's the nature of the female body. <laughs> All right. Well, this was awesome, Kaylee. I really, really appreciate you coming on the show and um, teaching us a lot. It was super informative. I think you gave people a lot of tools to walk away with and hopefully some relief um, as well. So you guys, again, I'm going to link to Kaylee's website um, down in the show notes. Um, You can check out her practice. You can check out her hormone, her hormones Academy. That's an online hormone um, program. Do do you have anything Mm -hmm. else to say before we sign off here? I just want to thank you for having me on and to have this, this important conversation, you know, not only about distinguishing between PCOS and HA, but also just distinguishing between conventional and functional approaches as a whole. I just so appreciate the conversations that you're having with your community and, and just the value that you're providing people. So honored to have been a part of it. Oh, well, thank you so much. And um, you guys go check out Kaylee. Oh, you're on Instagram too. Can you tell us your handle so that oh, yeah. we can follow you over there? Sure. It's just at Kaylee RD and I spell my name pretty weird, but it's K-A-E-L-Y-R-D. Yeah, those vowels are all mixed up. I know. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thank you, Kaylee. Yes, thank you. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Functional Nutrition Podcast. If you'd like to submit a question to the show, fill out the contact form at erinholthealth.com. If you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe and leave a review in iTunes. Take care of you.